Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing the Tritster. Whether you know him as Loki, Coyote, or even Jesse James, the Tritster has had an impact on the lore of the Ozarks. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. So how did the Tritster affect the legends of the Ozarks? From the infamous folk hero outlaws to cryptid tales, coyote, or even little Abner, the Trickster has been at home in the Ozarks for hundreds of years. You have to look at the tall tales, the Native American lore, as well as the myths that were brought with European settlers. We will return to the question of how the Tritster is hiding in plain sight in the Ozarks. But first, we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book, Dark Ozarks, The Spooklight. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. I have several books from uh, Always Buying Books actually right here in front of me. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty normal at this point. And um, <clears throat> I, want, I want some English ale. Yes, me too. We have to get back up there. We do. And uh, exciting. I, I <clears throat> would encourage people to 
to check out that subscription option, uh, mainly because there's a lot of off the cuff things that we can put on there that we really can't put elsewhere. So the subscription option on Facebook. And one of them is uh, on the on the ground videos from investigations. Yes. And uh, uh, there's going to be several of those coming up before too long. It is. And our, our uh, well, any season is investigation season for us, but we are uh, picking up uh, a number of locations that we're, we have been invited to, having the opportunity to check out. Some of them are quite active in terms of paranormal activity. And uh, it's, it's neat to go into those spaces and just see what happens. Exactly. So stay, you know, stay tuned, watch all of our, our media outlets and uh, get those details. Absolutely. The Tristar. Oh, Tristar is fascinating. And mm-hmm. we are we are really surrounded by the Trickster archetype, uh, oftentimes without realizing it. And sometimes we really are drawn to this archetype. In, in many ways, um, without realizing precisely why. That's true, and, and that holds true not only just in um, lore and, and myth, but in our history as well, which um, people don't always realize is that uh, a lot of the anti-hero uh, folk heroes um, really fit into that category and and uh, I may engender some um, uh, askance looks from from uh, viewers and listeners but uh, one prominent uh, example out of the Ozarks would be Jesse James. And I think that's really interesting. Now on a on a more mundane level uh, and James certainly is seen as the, the anti-hero um, mm-hmm. following the war. He is, in essence, uh, continuing uh, the war. There is a, there's a, there's a, uh, a natural transgressiveness that is taking place here. But it's also one that structures, from a, certainly from a Southern perspective, or a Southern-leaning perspective, a Confederate perspective, but also from a uniquely Missourian perspective that a, uh, a grounding in activity, a groundedness in the, in the response in the sense that had Jesse James been mm, doing these actions uh, under sanction from the Confederate army during the war, mm-hmm he would not necessarily be recognized as an outlaw. That, that's, that's true. Um, but, and even beyond that, um, when you look at the characteristics of the Tritster, Jesse James employed a lot of those factors. You can tick off a checklist almost. Um, <laughs> so one, which, which one, yeah, I was going to ask, which ones really jump out to you? Well, using disguise, um, the Tritster is usually a shapeshifter of some sort or uses disguises to um, 
hoodwink and fool his opponents. Um, and of course, during robberies, they, they would cover their faces. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, on a technical sense, definitely that, that falls into that category. Also, the tritster tends to almost invariably be male. Um, some over-the-top uh, behavior. Um, but there, there's usually either um, some very base behavior or, um, you know, in this case, out, you know, thievery or outlaw a behavior, but very clever. And certainly the James employed a lot of um, uh, clever um, techniques and um, not only to accomplish their robberies, but to garner the support of the average people who basically hid them so that they were not caught. And so, um, and, and it's part of the reason that there's such that parallel between Jesse James in pop culture and Robin Hood, who also falls un under the trickster motif. He does, and it would be fair, I believe, to say it's one of the reasons that the legends are so enduring. Yes, um, we, we are drawn to the archetype and have been for thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> And as I was doing research uh, this afternoon, and we get around to Robin Hood, Robin Hood is an interesting character. Well, <clears throat> the, the thing that really is, is fascinating to me is that we all know everything about Robin Hood, but we actually know nothing practically about Robin Hood. True. Uh, and you know, my, my, my claim to fame is that everything I learned about Robin Hood, I've learned from watching the Disney animated film. But I, I don't think that it is any big surprise that in the animated film, uh, Robin Hood is portrayed by a fox. Yes, yes. And which is also another um, attribute of the Tridster oftentimes is uh, that transformation uh, between uh, being a human and an animal. Yes, and and, and, and the, I find that I found that really really interesting. We have told, uh, and we I mean as humanity has told uh, trickster stories from what we can tell, pretty much as long as there have ever been humans telling stories. Pretty and, much, and a, and an enduring aspect of the archetype with this with this storytelling is. Animals, the, the first of all, that the, the trickster, and we'll get more into this a little bit later in the episode, but just in a short synopsis, um, the trickster is a god and an animal who acts like a human being. Yes. In, and, yes, in, 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 the, in, the, in the... In the lore. In, in, the, in the original lore, yes. And, and um, but certainly um, through history, there have been people who certainly employ the attributes of the Tridster. Yes, and, and, and the, the thing that I, 
just thought of as I was as working on stuff this afternoon was how interesting it was and probably inadvertent, uh, the idea of those archetypes welling up uh, unbidden that the animated Robin Hood classic by Disney mm -hmm. is just that. It's animals performing in a human world. Yes. Uh, and Robin Hood, as the, as the trickster, is portrayed by a fox, not, first of all, not that far removed from a coyote. And second of all, the fox has often appeared as a trickster motif in, uh, in European lore. So interesting combinations there. But then taking it a step further, the idea that individuals embody these characteristics and that's yeah. where we come to the outlaws. Exactly. And in 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 that sense, I it's it's hard not to see um, the James brothers fitting into that archetype, which I think is part of the appeal. Um, I, I agree. And, I very much agree with that. And I, and I think one one of the more legendary legendary stories about them really illustrates that point. And that's that's the that's helping the widow um, uh, save her farm. Yes. Um, yes. They they basically you know they um, they are the outlaws. They um, but they outwit the opponent, which in this case is the banker who's about to foreclose on this poor widow shortly after the civil war um the gang has come to come to the farm um asked to spend the night she feeds them although they realize pretty quickly that she doesn't have much but she shares what she has with them and then at some point one of the brothers um and it's usually kind of hinted that it's jesse um notices that she's crying and asks what's the matter and and she says that the the banker is coming that day or in the morning to foreclose and she doesn't have the money needed to, to keep the farm and a roof over her head and the children's head and so they ask how much she owes and it's usually in the story it's usually five hundred dollars which was a huge amount at the time and they take the money out with their wallet give it to her and tell her when the banker comes to give him the money and make sure she gets a receipt which is them being clever to outwit the the opponent um and then of course um the banker comes is surprised has to honor her payment gives her the receipt and as he's riding back to town of course they they stop him, rob him, and get their money back. <laughs> yes. Something that is, well, I guess, first of all, obviously, this is a part of the, the larger uh, legend of Jesse James. How confident are we that this did or did not happen in, in real life? I, I mean, there, there's, as far as I know, it's never been pinned down as to a specific widow, but the tale is actually told 
in various versions is happening in different places okay. um, throughout, usually, usually somewhere in Missouri. Um, so it may or may not have. We, we simply we simply don't know. Yeah, but it's it it's one of those stories that. First of all, it is fun to imagine. Yes. Uh, the everyday person can, can enjoy imagining that it happened. There's certainly an enormous amount of um, good natured uh, trickster ar archetype in this, in this uh, story. Um, because of that, and this, this is one of the things that I think often gets overlooked when you're dealing with archetypes is that the truth of the archetype, the truth of the legend is just as important as the historical documentation. Exactly. The, the story itself is the important thing. Now, the flip side of that is if they had been presented with that scenario, do I think that they would have done exactly that? Yes, and relished in it. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to agree. And there's also something <clears throat> very to me that is is fascinating about this process. And we see it with Robin Hood. Uh, we see it with uh, with Jesse James. So just tying the tying those directly together with uh, a lot of a lot of years and multiple centuries in between. Mm -hmm. But and coming back to the 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 motif of the banker in um, the 1870s in in rural Missouri, that this was that there is a there is a transgressive or subversive quality to this because the the railroad the bank um, these are are you know and and consequently the law. Yeah. Uh, these authoritarian structures. What is the purpose of the authoritarian structure? Uh, to provide safety, uh, to provide uh, well-being, to provide infrastructure, to, uh, to, if you were to ask in any of these iterations that they are there to uh, bring modernity or help the people or build civilization, these types of things. And then you focus down from the, the macro and the, the, the PR campaign, mm -hmm. and you focus down to the micro, which is the individual. And suddenly we have these situations in the case of post-war Missouri, we had a lot of these situations and it wasn't just Missouri, where on the, on the micro, uh, the, the opposite was happening. We had, um, the you know an enormous amount of hardship being uh, you know taking place as a result of some of these processes, some of these policies, and an enormous amount. We and again we we see something very similar during the Great Depression, where uh, individuals who, for example, may have worked incredibly hard, may have done everything quote unquote right, uh, done their best uh, in terms of uh, of interaction with the American dream 
etc. And suddenly what's going to happen? You're a widow, you're going to uh, have a bureaucrat foreclose on your house and you're gonna be, you and your children don't know where they're going to sleep tomorrow night. Very true and in, in, in there are ser actually several figures from the Great Depression and Prohibition era that really fit into this archetype as well. Um, John Dillinger comes to mind, um, who uh, would rob banks, but give uh, silver, silver dollars out to children on the street. Um, and um, you could, you in, you know, in some ways you could almost say, um, Pretty Boy Floyd and Bonnie and Clyde um, fit into that motif a little bit, or at least would have more so during that time period as being seen as fooling or getting back at the banks who were foreclosing on everyone's farms and so forth. Yes. And, and I think that there is also mm, something of note in terms of how, how the authoritarian structure responds to a trickster figure in this position. True. And it's uh, uh, retribution is typically swift. If 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 they're able to if they're able to catch the trickster, yes. Yeah, and and, and that's that's always the the question. And, and I think that the whether it's fully spoken or not, the the fear is that the subversiveness of the trickster, because the the, the trickster. Uh, archetype or the trickster god is there to upset the social order yes is there to he's there to stir the pot uh he is there to uh to turn things upside down and i think on a on a, a very base level a very base foundation um the the proprietors and the authority of the social order respond very quickly and from a from a very gut level that they do not want this type of subversiveness to spread exactly which in the case of jesse james you end up with uh kansas city State marshall and the governor uh conspiring multiple times over time actually to uh to catch them um including um their first attempt uh, outside of Joplin, Missouri, um, with George Shepard as as a gunman, um, and then ultimately, of course, the Ford brothers. Um, so it wasn't in that situation. It wasn't extremely swift, but in the end, it was pretty brutal yes. uh, in its ret retribution. And, and of course, infamously, Bonnie and Clyde as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's, and of course, there's also the, uh, the creation of the cautionary tale of, of essence, don't step too far outside the, uh, uh, the structure. Exactly, 
or, or this, this is what will happen. A couple of other examples that come up in, in lore a lot in, in, the, in the Ozarks region and further south um, that a lot of times people will probably assume are completely fictional um, and specifically murder ballads would be uh, Staggerly or Staggerly and Railroad Bill. And yeah. what people probably don't realize is that those were real men with history and um, concrete uh, events surrounding them. In fact, Stagger Lee, which of course has been immortalized in various versions of, of the ballad, Stagger Lee, um, we've discussed previously as one of the more infamous um, inmates at the old Missouri Penitentiary in St. Louis, over in Jefferson City. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, but the, the crime, the crime that he ultimately went to the state pen for was, was in St. Louis. Yes, it was in St. Louis. Um, and um, again, um, there, there were attributes of shape-shifting to his story and disguise and so forth um, that gets focused um, upon. So it, it's a, it's a situation of, of real life imitating art, you know, real life sort of imitating the mythological archetype, which is interesting. It and, is, it really is. And then Railroad Bill is very similar to that as well, which um, Railroad Bill has been immortalized in ballads as well, uh, but it, the story itself comes more out of the South towards down towards Alabama, the historical events. Uh, it does, it does. And, and, and ultimately Railroad Bill was, uh, was killed in 1896. Yes. And, and his mm, <laughs> uh, crimes essentially were in the, the Alabama and, and Florida panhandle yeah. uh, region predominantly uh, against the Louisville and Nashville Railroad. But, but a lot of parallels with Jesse James, um, not only robbing trains, but, and then more so for James robbing banks, um, but basically attacking the institutions of the status quo, basically. Very, very much so. And I think it's, I think it's, mm, there, there are too many tie-ins for us not to consider uh, railroad bill into the larger mythos of essentially the rural American South. And yes. the, the important tie-in is that the, uh, uh, a portion of the Ozarks borders the Delta South, uh, even in Missouri. And there's an enormous amount of crossover in terms of well, the Ozarks are part of the upland south. Yes. Well, and it, I find it, even aside from that, I just find it interesting of the sort of the parallel appeal of 
this anti-hero that it's you know it, it's a broader phenomena than just Jesse James and the Ozarks um and it it continued after his infamous demise it, it did and 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 will continue I think that's a a, a reality is that these archetypes don't go away and no amount of uh, authoritarianism, no amount of bureaucracy, no amount of, uh, uh, of religion, no amount of secularism, no amount of uh, making sure that the entire world has a giant childproof safety cap is going to change the reality that these archetypes are innate to the human experience. They, they really are. And if, and if you look at mythology around the world, they, the trickster is in virtually all civilizations. And, and I, think that's in, I think that is important. We're, we're really dealing with the, the tension uh, between structures. And you could even argue the tension between worlds and it's, it, is, it is a very powerful thing. There was a couple of things with um, Staggerly and Railroad Bill that jumped out to me in terms of, of aspects of research that I think are just interesting. Uh, one is that, uh, that Railroad Bill uh, at one point traveled with a circus and learned uh, is rumored or suggested to have learned the skill as a performer and a showman in addition mm -hmm. to being uh, essentially an athlete. That, to me, that is significant. The circus in this particular case really represents that liminal space, that stepping between worlds. And in this particular instance, it could certainly be theorized that uh, the, the railroad bill as an African-American in the 1880s, 1870s, 1880s, uh, stepping into that liminal space of the circus was also stepping into the liminal space where he was, um, was not subservient within this culture. Right. Well, and it, uh, it it served as a platform to uh, outwit his opponents as well. And then coming back into the real world uh, that you could, you could see the, in this particular case, the circus motif, the, this, this liminal sort of world between the worlds, then stepping back into the mundane world where suddenly you're a second-class citizen, suddenly, uh, the the authorities and the law and the railroads can tell you what to do and tell you you know and treat you however they feel like right and after having been within this this liminal space uh and learning the art of showmanship learning the art of a performer learning the art of crafting and embodying various uh, various characters various motifs various archetypes suddenly say you know what i'm not playing about your rules and uh essentially breaking for for a short period of time breaking the spell of being um indentured mentally 
within the structure. Very true. And uh, from a archetype perspective, that allows him to step into the role of the trickster god having more power than those around him. And for a brief period of time, he did. Yes. And often that is the result. Uh, either the trickster gets away with it wholeheartedly or is brought down. And in Railroad and, Bill's situation, he was brought down. And, and I think that <clears throat> that you know we would we would say, well, that was a good run, your luck ran out, that sort of thing. There there is a an aspect of the embodiment of a god mm -hmm. that suggests that mortals can only carry that mantle for so long before they have to lay it down. Very true. I, I, I like that perspective. And I think the, a good illustration to just suppose that would be Loki as yes. the god. <laughs> yes. And, and I mean, thanks to Marvel, Loki is probably the, well, he is almost the most well-known trickster god in society. The, the most well-known trickster god in society is Bugs Bunny. Yes. <laughs> um. Agreed. And, you know, you know, now, and something that seems to be a misconception in a lot of the portrayal of Loki is that he is Thor's brother, which he is not. No, not in the original lore. And, no. uh, but obviously a part of, of uh, the Asgardians. Uh, yeah. And uh, of course, a lot of Loki's antics uh, and uh, saving the world by doing all sorts of terrible things. Mm, had they, well, let's just say if they had, had actually filmed that, it wouldn't be a PG-13 rated movie. Very true. Very true. <laughs> In some cases, it wouldn't even be an R-rated movie. Very, very true. So, you know, something's better left to the imagination. Yes, we'll, we'll let you all imagine on that for a moment. Um, <laughs> before, before we leave uh, Railroad Bill and Stagger Lee, there's, there's two, other, two other points I just, that really came to mind. One with, uh, with Stagger Lee is that there was a, um, at least a pretty decent uh, implication or rumor that he had spent a lot of time working on the, on the river boats. That's true. I'd forgotten and, about that. And uh, the aspect of riverboats also uh, existing as a liminal space, uh, showboats existing like the circus, uh, again, in those those in between spaces, really brings up the question: Are there are there? And I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. Some similarities, in the sense that you you know here again is is is, is an individual, an African American living um, under uh, pretty oppressive circumstances, uh, who may have found a way temporarily to step into uh 
a threshold space where those circumstances were no longer in play and stepping back into quote unquote the real world uh, and being unwilling to simply un unready, unwilling or, um, or, or very opposed to the idea of stepping back into this space uh, of oppression. And interestingly enough, although I think, you know, modern minds might really struggle with this, that Jesse James, having fought in war, having seen atrocities committed against his family, um, and then targeting the, uh, the man, so to speak, the, uh, the structures, he had already, war had stepped ass had had moved him out of this space i i think that is a reasonable analogy and particularly in the case of confederate bushwhackers or partisan rangers um particularly under Quantrell and Bloody Bill Anderson that who the James brothers wrote under, um, definitely they stepped outside of normal conventions. Uh, rules did not apply the same way. Um, and uh, more of a sense of determining life and death analogous to the to the gods of, of myth um, and um, to step back into reality in a lot of cases it would be a very similar circumstance particularly when you have to realize that doing so at the end of the civil war in Missouri as a confederate most opportunities were taken away from you. You couldn't practice most uh, vocations, um, uh, often couldn't hold office, couldn't do a lot of things. And so um, for a period of five or six years until uh, another state constitution was passed. So basically it was a situation where they could not function in a normal way. Yes. So uh, I, I think there are some very valid parallels between the three, really. Mm -hmm. And it, it reminds me, just as we're talking, it reminds me of, of, of another very interesting Missourian uh, associated with St. Louis, not the Ozarks specifically, but certainly the St. Louis, which is Josephine Baker. Very okay. true. And uh, something that, that, that was particularly notable about Josephine, um, she was a, a um, jazz era 1920s, 1930s superstar um, in, in singer and dancer uh, mm -hmm. and provocative dancer as well, yes. uh, who later went on to have a magnificent, albeit troubled uh, life in the 1960s and, and 70s, uh, was also a a hero of the French resistance underground. Uh, so yes, yeah, she, well, she lived in Paris for a long time too. 
and that was really coming down to my point. Um, having having grown up at the time, uh, turn of the century, St. Louis and East St. Louis as well. Um, and then as an entertainer, having the opportunity to go to France and really make France her, her homeland uh, mm -hmm. during the 20s and 30s, uh, mentally, just in terms of her mental space, she really could not come back to segregated America. That, that's correct because she, the, the environment was so much different um, and very much more progressive on, on those issues that um, I guess you, you could really say that expats in Paris in the 20s really did experience their own liminal space. They did, which which I think has been uh, was celebrated through art and literature, and and you know is 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 an epic of of you know a moment within the twentieth century and that space. Uh, but then, just on a on a nuts and bolts level, just on a real world level, if you know the thinking about how certain situations like this shift one's um, patience for a thing uh, or acceptance of a thing that had she stayed in St. Louis, she might've been at times appalled or irritated or angry about Jim Crow, but not necessarily as, as you know, ready to say, I'm not gonna put up with this. Um, there's no way that I'm going to live with this. I'm going to go do something else. But having lived in France and having the opportunity, but then also just existing within the space that there, there, those laws weren't there, um, she couldn't come back to that space. And of course, Josephine is a, is a great example of uh, uh, complex individuals that there's no real easy answers. Um, <laughs> And a number of her mm, forcibly adopted children uh, <laughs> certainly had interesting views <laughs> about living with Josephine. So I'm not I'm not making her a saint um, in in this regard, but it's yeah. but she's a fascinating and beloved figure. It's it's kind of interesting as as you were talking about Josephine made me think um, in some ways it's it's very her story kind of illustrates um, this the myth of uh, of the Odyssey um, Tridster, the spider from um, Ghana and West Africa. That's a really good point um, yeah. because uh, he uh, was a symbol of resistance for for African slaves um, as the stories came to the New World, and um, and a reminder that something as small as a spider can can uh, you know basically foil um, the powers that be. Um, yes. and Josephine pretty much did that in her own way. She did. And, and I think what is also interesting 
Uh, and, and this is a, a cautionary tale, uh, not just being particular, although she's certainly included in this, but the, the, the embracing of the archetypes, mm -hmm. the full embracing of the archetypes from a, a mythopoetic standpoint is touching the divine. It's touching the gods. And as you touch the gods, you become like them. And your, you know, for almost from a Prometheus standpoint, you are literally playing with fire and figuratively playing with fire. And the idea that it's, <laughs> it's not dissimilar from demonic possession, can't believe I just said that. Um, I'm gonna get into so much trouble with that. I know I am. But it is not dissimilar in the sense that the individuals suddenly find themselves compelled to seemingly erratic behavior. But when you understand the archetype that they're embracing, that behavior actually begins to make sense. And something that's I think is a brilliant comparison is Josephine Baker with the Anansi legends. Well, yes, and I guess I, you know, would say the, the parallel with demonic possession of, of course, the the difference being free will. Yes, and, and who's in charge? That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. But, um, but uh, I don't know. It just it it struck me that um, when you think about it, her her life really does seem to be a good illustration. Of it does. <laughs> It does, and something from the, the Ghana uh, archetypal legends uh, in regards specifically to the trickster is the idea that the, the story actually, the stories begin in approximate balance. Mm -hmm. The world is basically in balance. There might be some issues, but it's basically in balance. And it ends in imbalance. It ends in disharmony. And yeah. That to me is fascinating. Of course, that goes against much of our Western civilization storytelling process. Where's the resolve? Where everything needs to come to a nice, happy ending. And it's, I think, a, a, a beautiful um, way of shaking up our mindset of getting ourselves out of colonialist Western thought of saying, this is how a story has to happen. Uh, Anansi, the spider god, is a perfect example of that. And uh, there's, a, there's a great uh, biography of Josephine Baker. It's massive, it's like 600 pages. Mm -hmm. I have it and I've read it. And it's really, really good. <clears throat> but something that is striking and, and there's the, the author, uh, at the time, there were still a number of first-person uh, interviews that he was able to get of individuals who had worked closely with, with Baker, had um, interacted with her during the war, after the war, and then also a number of her adopted children who weighed in. Mm -hmm. And there was... There, there was some really interesting moments in those interviews because it was a situation where um, th there was almost a, a goddess quality um, uh, about Josephine, but it, in the sense of very goddess-like, much like Anansi, that you, you never knew what 
what version of Josephine that you were going to get. Yes. And, and this was an individual that, for example, was willing to risk getting executed for fighting the Nazis. At the same mm-hmm. time, made several of her children's lives a living hell after yeah. she'd gone to the trouble of adopting them uh, and would, would, you know, so the, just a, a extraordinary amount of disharmony and, uh, and almost from a, from a mundane standpoint, you would say madness, but from, a, from an archetypal standpoint, it is the embodiment and perhaps necessary embodiment of a god. True. And, you know, one other one example of sort of the disharmony from the Western world of mythology, you actually mentioned earlier, would be Prometheus. Um, Because um, and some might be surprised to view him as a trickster, but. um, You know, he did basically trick the gods mm-hmm. um and on behalf of humanity on behalf of humanity um and certainly created disharmony in 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 the, in the world of the gods and to his own demise again one with retribution coming down upon him for it Yes. Yes. And, and we see, you know, in the, in the terms of, of this particular Western mythos, uh, a trickle down effect of mm, tricksters and trickster gods and trickster demigods uh, in terms of, for example, Prometheus and then Atlas and then Hercules mm-hmm. uh, or Heracles. And just, it's, it's interesting. And something that has perhaps been a a liability of uh, current or more contemporary Western civilization is that we have mm, left the the Greek mythos and particularly the problematic aspects and the ugliness of the Greek mythos behind for a much more sanitized versions. And in so doing, we've left ourselves open to being blindsided by this type of um, manifestation of human behavior? Well, I mean, um, maybe we can blame the mouse. I mean, um, (laughs) 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 a certain certain studio that uh, relishes in in regurgitating myth and and mythos um tends to go down that road you know very much so very much so and and um and, and i think a a certain amount of uh uh pulling back from mm, the rigors of classical education as well in the sense that it wasn't comparatively speaking uh that long ago that uh, many of these myths would have been were were actually uh, well read by settlers. Yes, and, and in some cases, were, the contents would have been no unstated but known. Yes, 
Uh, and in some cases we, you know, and this I think is, is again, almost a trickster juxtaposition uh, because in, in many cases, not all certainly, but in many cases, um, the, uh, the settlers uh, settling the uh, wild frontiers of places like Ohio uh, and then Indiana and Kentucky and then Missouri and then, then on westward, um, not only were, were literate, uh, in many cases, they were reading uh, the Greek classics mm -hmm. in Greek. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I'm just reminded, even, even my, my dad um, had four years of Latin in high school. And I remember one of his favorite books was Caesar's Gaelic Wars in Latin. <laughs> That's impressive. That's so, so yeah, so you know, it's not that long ago that it was a very broad education, um, educational experience. And uh, kind of, again, going back to, to a a figure who, in terms of his association with the early West, which of course was Tennessee, and Tennessee's impact, um, market impact on the Ozarks, particularly Missouri, mm -hmm. <laughs> our favorite um, anti-hero president, Andy Jackson, <laughs> that Again, as, as I mentioned multiple times on the, on the episodes, you walk into the foyer at, of the Hermitage and it is a floor to ceiling wallpaper mural of the, the, the epic of Telemachus. Yeah. And <laughs> the, the, the other aspect of that, which I think is important not to be overlooked, is that a number of the hillbilly Tennessee settlers who called upon Mr. Jackson in his uh, presidency and post-presidency mansion would have been able to have looked at the uh, graphic, almost comic book-like representations of the Epic of Telemachus and recognized exactly what they were seeing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then um, another example, circling back around to the James brothers is that, uh, even while they were robbing banks and trains, um, Frank James carried a volume of Shakespeare, uh, actually carried it through the war as well, as well um, and read Shakespeare um, daily and was known to quote Shakespeare routinely, um, which is, you know, again, not something that you think of with someone while they're in the midst of robbing a bank, but. No, no, you do not. And it, it also is, is a, a vastly overlooked aspect of the reconstituted 1930s through 70s Western frontier myth, because, you know, to, to a modern audience, the idea of sophisticated, uh, highly literate in case and in his uh, 
uh, bilingual and trained in the ancient classics, uh, Outlaw Cowboy. Yes. <laughs> is, is not part, it's, it's uh, a, a surreal juxtaposition. It's these things don't go together. And the fact that in many cases, those things did go together as part of historical record really speak, first of all, to the, uh, the what would be the right word? Um, like the, the washing away of the nuances of reality. Well, yes, the very uh, a simplification of history and in the in the in the in the people involved and what another aspect of the the trickster motif that i think is incredibly important and often overlooked is the to me the trickster as a god archetype really bridges the space between the lofty divine and the very earthy reality of humanity Yes, um, it's a duality that um, our modern sense um, tends to um, rebel at uh, synthesizing. It um, mm -hmm. we we want we want black and white. We want little boxes and and things that don't fit in a nice neat little box tend to make the modern mind nervous um and it the trickster is anything but that what, it, it, whether in myth or 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 uh these real life characters who basically took on the archetype it does it's it is the the very innate nature of the trickster creates an enormous amount of tension Yes, uh, that 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 also elicits the tension itself. Elicits extremely strong responses. Uh, the response can can typically be uh, love or hate, or both. Yes, or or love to hate. Uh, <laughs> it could explain the uh, the overall mm, mixed reviews of Moulin Rouge, actually by Baz Luhrmann, which. <laughs> and we're back to Paris. Um, but, uh, but something else, just in terms of the earthy nature, that that really jumped out to me, and I'm back to Railroad Bill for just a moment. But uh, a Railroad Bill, like Staggerly, inspired multiple uh, songs, multiple folk blues songs that that worked their way into uh, beyond public domain uh, and into uh, uh, modern uh, mid-century, mid-20th century uh, music and then consequently went on to inspire uh, a number of, you know, uh, genres, including rock and roll uh, mm -hmm. or just rock. But uh, Will Bennett's 1929 uh, lyrics of Railroad Bill included two lines, one stanza, that really jumped out to me because I went, oh my gracious, I had no idea where that came from, uh, which was, if River was Brandy and I was a duck, I'd sink to the bottom and I'd never come up. 
And and between that and Little Abner, uh, I was suddenly reading all sorts of sayings that managed to make their way into everyday usage in my family. The the if if water in uh, Grandpa's version was whiskey instead of brandy, but still, uh, I grew up with that saying, but I didn't know that it was a song. Exactly. And, and that's, uh, that is part of the elegance of this tradition is that aspects of it do bleed over into everyday life as parables, as cautionary tales, or a shorthand for you know, just conveying a, a lesson of to be wary of doing this or be wary of the trickster um, that has a unconscious resonance and meaning that, just as you said, most people would, would not put that together if, if particularly if you were not versed in 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 that ballad um but it still has a has the same meaning yes in, in either it, context it, it functions the same way and uh, we'll, we'll you know when we, when we get over to the labner I've, I've got several that that come to mind and that uh were, were family specific one of them involving pumpkins so long story i'll make it short but it really is it is powerful and i think one of the things that i i particularly appreciate about the the real trickster uh motif is this this bridging of the very human the very earthy um and also the divine at the same time yes and um, I think part I think part of the appeal is that it gives a glimpse of a situation where the average person, the every man, can can sort of touch the divine, uh, whereas so often with organized religion in a particularly in the last thousand years mm-hmm. uh, there there's a conduit between the average man and the divine mm-hmm. um, the sense that to experience the divine you have to go through the priest the minister Mm-hmm. a building um whereas this lore is is very more reminiscent of older traditions that we all have that connection um and, that we can make on our own and and something that uh mm, you know, a, a millennia of high church tradition has has largely done is uh, stripped away the idea of a sense of humor. 
<laughs> very true. <laughs> yeah. And 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 that is that is the no, little, little thing called the Inquisition tends to <laughs> take the fun out of everything. <laughs> <laughs> The Inquisition was such a drag. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't be laughing right now. Um, no. And and we're and we're on the as as you noted on your Facebook post this morning. Um, <laughs> we are on the uh, the precipitous anniversary eve of the Salem witch trials. Yes, they 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 did start. Um... 331 years ago today. Um, if there if there was ever a group of people who uh, had stripped an earthy sense of humor out of their clannish society um, at, the, at the time. And, and, and I think that certainly a, a aspects of the um, the rise of interest in uh, things like neo-paganism and heathenry really do uh, draw in part from that that desire to to connect with the earthiness that is also associated with the divine. That I, I agree, and I think it's really a universal yearning um, mm -hmm. that um, um, So, so much of organized religion tends to separate people from that um, it ends up creating that yearning even in more earnest oftentimes. And, and I think it probably also goes, you know, it's important, um, full disclaimer, for myself, uh, I am a, an active participant in organized Christian religion uh, and have been for a long time. I have an enormous amount of respect for it. At the same time, I think that these larger conversations are incredibly important because it's it is part of the human experience. It is not part of um, you know, div division and labels. It is part of being human. Oh, definitely. I mean, I certainly I you know I was raised in uh, the tradition as well, and um, and I'm not disparaging. And you know, I just I think that by by the nature of the the institution it tends to create uh an unspoken yearning that people want to explore it does and and we're, we're often getting tidbits of this um the, this larger world in 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 bits and pieces we see it and I think that uh, the current uh, MCU iteration of Loki and his popularity is because of that. Although I would say that um, Loki in this this particular uh, and and I love I love the character. Don't don't hate. Uh, I love the character. I love I love the character of Thor. But I do think that there's a, a sanitization that takes place that ha has pulled back. Let's put it this way. Loki's just a little too clean and a little too pretty uh, to really fit into the, the, the trickster motif in a full sense. Because there is a, an earthiness um, 
that that honestly is much more akin to the hillbilly jester than it is to um, sort of ah, the 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 enlightened Asgardians of the MCU. Yeah, I I, th I think I think you're you're right there. I, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> It's it's really just because of the fact that I've watched Thor Ragnarok way too many times. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm I'm not saying I'm embarrassed about it. I'm not saying I'm proud about it. I'm just saying it is. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> well, maybe on that note, we we uh, we switch gears a little bit to cryptids. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is not as big of a jump as you people are going to think it is um, no, which is the surprising part it, it is and really interesting bit of research and there's a strong cryptid connection uh both well in, in sort of uh, you know framing it from from three perspectives one a northeastern United States uh, cryptid sighting uh, from 1977 and then also a, a folkloric aspect from Native American lore in um, southeastern Canada but then also the trickster motif uh, as well as the little people motif which is almost intermingled in terms of the Cherokee yes and um we're we're talking the, the the cryptid aspect of this we're talking about the dover demon um and we are outside the ozarks here but dover massachusetts and um it's it's really fascinating as a sort of a concept because it's an amalgamation um but and and i've i've heard of the dover demon previously um i wasn't as familiar with sort of the older lore concerning the area which is interesting but the the dover demon basically there were sightings in april of 1977 uh the primary wit witness was bill bartlett and he was 17 at the time who observed this creature on farm, what's called Farm Street in Dover um, along a, on a stone wall and there's an outcropping of a rock there um, that the locals call Polka Rock. Um, and he said that there was a creature on top of the, the wall that had large uh, red eyes and trindle-like fingers um, and that um, made a very large impression upon him. Two other young people saw similar things in different areas of town. Um, they gave, they reported to the police, gave statements, sketches were made. And their sightings were pretty consistent, which is interesting. It does, and from everything I 
I was able to find and dig, there didn't seem to be an indication that they had consulted each other, knew each other, that that any of the accounts were copycat accounts. So, um, which is interesting. And they're still there, particularly Bartlett still lives in town to this day. Um, and they weren't craving attention. They didn't seem to be craving attention or infamy. You know, they, they weren't seeking attention with this, as which is interesting because it denotes credibility, more credibility. Um, which, you know, it's, it's a creature that in part you say a little bit like Mothman, a little bit maybe like Wendigo, etc. in description, but it doesn't, but it doesn't fit any of those things. It does not. And there, there's interesting correlations in this. Now, at the time, <clears throat> Uh, police told the Associated Press that they believed that it was, quote, probably nothing more than a school vacation hoax. But what is, to me, really, really powerful, this took place in 1977. Um, uh, in 2006, we have a newspaper article revisiting it, and 29 years later, William Bartlett is still standing beside, behind his story. He's not mm -hmm. recanting it, but he's also not profiting from it or benefiting from it in any way. And even at one point, uh, largely says, you know, in, in this case, uh, I didn't make it up. Sometimes I wish I had. Yeah. And another point he says, it's a thing that's been following me for years, not the creature, the story. Yes. Yes. And sometimes I dread every Halloween getting calls about it. So um, right. almost one of his, his own nightmare. Um, um, but it, it is very, um, very interesting. Now there was a, another incident a year later um, where something um with a teenage couple part and something banging on the car um that uh, they liken it to almost a modern day sleepy hollow encounter um but um in a in the same area but then it gets more interesting that if you go back to 1914, a book by uh, Frank Smith called Dover Farms writes of Farm Street that in early times, this road went around uh, by the picturesque Polka Rock, um, which was called for a man by that name of whom it is remembered and amid the superstitions of the age he thought he saw his satanic majesty as he was riding on horseback by the secluded spot so we have a a devil or demon on a horseback 
And then also it's noted that the same spot um, has legends of a hidden treasure, but no one has been able to find it or ascertain why there would be treasure there that it's um, you know far enough away from the sea, et cetera, it wouldn't be pirates, et cetera. So um, and then there's the supposition uh, or theory that the Polka Rock was actually named the Puka Rock and over time became known as Polka instead which makes this even more interesting. It does, it does. There, there's a couple of aspects of this that I think are, are worth digging into. One, um, if the if Puka Rock is actually Puka Rock, um, Pukas are uh, an Irish fae, uh, generally associated with the, the Seely Court, uh, thank you, WB Yates, that are, are a mischievous fae and uh, typically not a deadly fae, although they certainly could do that if they wanted to, uh, but they are highly mischievous. The, we don't know what a puka actually looks like. We do know that it manifests itself uh, as a dog uh, or a large rabbit or horse or sometimes a person. Mm -hmm. And the, the aspects of manifesting as a person or as a horse in particular, do makes one draw some comparisons with the Scottish Kelpie, but the Kelpie kills people and then eats them. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the puka typically just plays pranks. Right. But again, it's a shapeshifter. Yes. And so, you know, a form of a tritster. Mm -hmm. and, and to a certain degree, we, we can almost say if something is existing as a ship as a shapeshifter, there is a strong trickster aspect to it, regardless. Very true. Very true. And and interestingly enough, that could be um, shifters for one. Uh, it could be any one of these aspects of, of fae or folk folkloric beings or creatures, fairies, uh, or it literally could be an outlaw putting on a disguise. Exactly, exactly. Um, then, there, then there's the Canadian tie into this. Yes, and the, the biggest tie is the, the recognition that what was seen in Dover, Massachusetts in 1977 um, strongly resembles uh, a being out of Cree folklore. Yes. The, the Manigishi. Yeah, and the Manigishi uh, is in some cases described simply as a trickster cryptid. Uh, there's, there's a great overview uh, on uh, the, the YouTube channel, William DeFalco, who covers a lot of cryptids. And what is, there's, there's key elements. You take the Dover demon, 
uh, and this is what the original connection was made for us, but you take the Dover Demon <clears throat> and the Manigishi from Cree lore, and you have uh, a small human-like being um, with gray skin, really large eyes, extremely slender arms and legs, um, six long fingers, tendril-like fingers, and then no mouth and no nose. Yes. That's creepy. That is creepy. Um, it also reminds me a bit of um, Pale Walker accounts. It does. Which there are accounts of Pale Walkers in the Ozarks. Yes, there are. Um, some very close to home. <laughs> some very close to home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very close to home. <laughs> Uh, and what is to me really fascinating now the uh, the Cree, and it's important to note um, we're, we're talking about the, the ancestral lands of the Cree, which is largely uh, southeastern Canada on the, the, the northern banks uh, or the northern edges, the north side of the, of the Great Lakes. Yeah. Uh, important in in terms of just a cursory overview. We're not talking about the Creek Indians. We're talking about the Cree Indians. Right. Important distinction because uh, the Creeks uh, are in southeast United States. Now, the 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 Cree lore associates these almost as water nymphs or water sprites. Uh, mm -hmm associated consistently associated with water now there, there are some accounts that go into um, uh, an interesting physiological hypotheses that they 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 breathe amphibian like through their skin um, mm -hmm. water etc and so they they just like the water because that's where they breathe and that explains why they don't have a nose um, we, we still haven't explained why they don't have a mouth. I'm afraid I'm learning how they actually eat or what they eat or if they eat. Um, yeah. <laughs> they just absorb you in your sleep. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, just ponder that as you, as you, as you lay in bed tonight. Uh, but there is... I think oftentimes when we're dealing with this type of cryptid, it is a mistake to try to make it fit into our natural world in the same way that an animal. We're not really talking about taxonomy here, you know, a physiological taxonomy. We're talking about something that, and I don't think that I'm too far off base on, that may be more akin to phenomena surrounding a conjuring space. I think that's potentially uh, accurate there. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's. I, I don't th I don't think there's any real assumption that it's a animal per se. Um, the one one possible explanation that 
was given by some authorities at the time was, well, uh, might have been a yearly moose. Yes. Um, but it didn't it didn't make sense for the time of year and the size of what was seen. Um, and uh, that likely even a young moose at that time of the year would have been the size of a car and probably not mistaken. <laughs> and, and most likely not climbing over the side of the wall using its long uh, tendril-like fingertips. Bipedally at that. Right. There's the, the, the aspect that is, there's an interesting tie-in in terms of trickster with the Managishi because the, the Cree lore about the Managishi is that it plays tricks. It's highly intelligent, it plays tricks. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the lore does not seem to say that it is dangerous, that it's gonna you know, throttle you in your sleep like Gollum, but it is, um, you know, does weird things, uh, unsettling things. It throws rocks, it makes strange noises. Um, Apparently, there is also a fur-bearing version, um, and and <laughs> if that's not <laughs> if one isn't creepy enough, then <laughs> yeah. and, and I, I think the the fact that you know that that is reasonable to conjecture that that the Monogishi come and go um, through a conjuring space. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's also associated with caves as well. Yes, which which have a strong association with interspace or not interspace, but uh, a concept that in the Ozarks, certainly from a folkloric perspective, has been at times referred to as the below ground, meaning the underworld. Uh, again, strong association with uh, uh, Welsh lore, uh, the 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 other world, the kingdom of the other world. And there is, for, for some of us, particularly with, with Celtic, and I think in some cases Native American uh, ancestry, the, the idea of slipping between worlds is not that difficult to conceptualize. No, I, I don't think so. And, and that's often, uh, the motif of the tradster is often um, exemplified in that sense by things like the coyote um, that um, slip between spaces unseen. Um, yes. And, uh, and here in the Ozarks, there are instances of uh, phantom coyote experiences that would be almost a literal experience of that liminal space. I, and I believe it is. And, and the other thing, so sort of triangulating the lore of the Managishi to the, um, the situation at Dover, which has, you know, the, the particular area at Dover where this Managishi-like being you know, appeared to have manifested, uh, that is also a space of unique conjuring uh, aspects mm -hmm. to, I'm going to 
you know the 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 next point on the on the triangle for me is Devil's Promenade and Brooklyn yeah. Road, which again the the idea that certain spaces which may be associated with um, very ancient conjurings. Mm -hmm. The idea that a, a ritual conjuring may have taken place or may have taken, a number of them may have taken place, um, certainly by an earlier people and that the, the, the resonance of that continues. Right, and, and some people may be um, unfamiliar with what, what we're referring to there for the Devil's Promenade area, which will be if you read the book that's that we have coming out next month or at the end of the month, because it is March now. Um, uh, there's more on that there that it's it's something that's not widely publicized in literature so, so far, but uh, theory that we certainly are exploring and investigating as far as the conjuring. It is, it is, and it's it's a it's a concept that I think has a weight, of course, there's many with these, many of these things, there's simply so much we don't know, but just as we, you know, when we come back to the, the paranormal realities, the realities are, do we understand what a paranormal phenomenon is fully? No, we don't, we conjecture. Do we understand that phenomena occurs? Absolutely. Yes. And, and in the case of uh, these, what we're referring to as, as ancient conjuring spaces or ancient conjuring sites, it is the conjecture that something was ritualistically done over a long period of time or a long time ago mm -hmm. that has essentially opened something up. Um, not necessarily something bad, but certainly opened something. And as a result of that, there is a wide variety of phenomena that would otherwise seem inexplicable to all be taking place in the same location or same immediate region. Yes, well put. <laughs> it's, it's the, I also wanted to throw in the, the fact that I think that the Manigishi move in and out of, of uh, space Mm -hmm. um, and uh, consequently, there, there's. I, I have two two thoughts on that. One, because we're not dealing, we're dealing with something that is physical, but is physical only as it chooses to be, in essence, or physical within our dimension or realm, only as it feels like, and then it moves back to wherever it came from, um, at, at will. And it's very realistic that water and or caves are the portal. Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, the, the portal might be naturally occurring. In other cases, the portal might have been created by a conjuring. We, we theorized similar things in regards to, I believe, the, the dog man, some of the dog mm -hmm. man lore. Yeah, uh, it, a lot of the, the lore of the dog man seems to parallel that um now the, there's a couple and this is because it's late and it's march 1st i suppose uh and it's just my brain which 
you know, brings up the fact that uh, the right kind of conjuring at the right place might open up an inadvertent portal and a, might mm, accidentally poop out a unsuspecting Managishi who suddenly look around going, where the hell am I? That's what- How did I get over. here? <laughs> yeah, where did, where did I come from? Um, <laughs> in regards to the fur-bearing Managishi, uh, the <laughs> fact that they clearly can come and go is the, the fact that they can come and go as they, as they will uh, and consequently are extremely elusive is a good thing. Otherwise, they would have been likely exterminated by the East India Trading Company and turned into a bunch of fur hats in London about you know, 1690. <laughs> well, thankfully, that didn't happen. Yes, yes. Um, um, <laughs> I'm now I'm contemplating uh, save a Monagishi bumper sticker. T-shirt might work better. I'm good. Oh, I am good with that as a T-shirt. Save your local Monagishi. have to make note. <laughs> oh, I have paper. Coming soon to the website. <laughs> um, I guess we should know, um, we've touched a little bit on, on native lore, including um, and the predominant tribe in the Ozarks before relocation, of course, was the Osage. And yeah. the Osage do have Tritster, a Tritster god, mm -hmm. the, um, the Itsuki. But ironically, it's not, not very prominent um, compared to other tribes. Um, and Specifically, he's not a coyote. He's not represented as coyote. Um, <laughs> but I do find it kind of interesting that they that the Osage didn't focus as much on Tritster legends as some other tribes in the in the region. It really is uh, because in so many cases the the Tritster figure is such a a, a dominant figure. Mm -hmm. um, Raven in uh, uh, the Northwest, uh, Rabbit in the Southeast, uh, Coyote in the Southwest, and and again we're 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 looking at a really interesting confluence of ideas. Uh, these are animals and birds that, if you're familiar with them, you understand they're they're highly intelligent. They're very clever. They do play tricks, um, mm -hmm. just by nature. And if you're you're out watching, and, and same could be said for foxes, but you watch and uh, and coyotes coyotes will screw with you if you get mm -hmm. you know as you're and you know in, the, in that process. And so you can say that. You know, just from a purely clinical or uh, or mundane view, uh, human beings watch the animals 
decide to draw lessons from the animals. That's a that's a pretty basic childhood storybook approach uh, to how stories begin. Uh, I, I think that it overlooks the fact that there are very magical or otherworldly or archetypal uh, lessons to be learned from the natural world. Mm-hmm. That it's it's not and and we we have a very um, insulated and privileged view where we can look at the natural world often from a, sort of this this snooty place on high uh, because our lives are not currently dependent upon the vagaries and the violence and the uh, the uncertainty of nature. Fair point. Uh, however, uh, wouldn't take much crumbling of civilization to put us right back there. So snootiness is mm, a perhaps undeserved privilege. If, if anyone um, questions that, just drop yourself in the middle of the savanna and see how <laughs> how nature encroaches the form of <laughs> lions, rhinoceros, etc. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, the, the, this is and that's that's one and although I don't want to be stalked by an apex predator, I think it's one of the reasons that we are um, fascinated by the concept because we really take this this very uh, high up position that we're at the top of the food chain. Yeah. And once in a while, we're not. And it's, and sometimes, and as we've, we've noted, in most cases with paranormal interaction, uh, it's not a, it's not a pecking order. Uh, there's simply mm, reasonably fair interaction amongst between paranormal and physical uh, ghosts and people uh, things and people not a lot of freak out moments just they're kind of doing their thing we're kind of doing ours sometimes our paths intersect but once in a while in the spiritual realm as well there is an apex predator and these are these are conscious elements that are really there i think as as cautionary tales and reminders to remember our real place and sometimes stay in our lane that's that and that's a valuable lesson and you know it it doesn't it doesn't do any good to you know freak the hell out but it is a reminder at times to tread lightly tread lightly in respect Mm -hmm. it's it's surprising first of all i think it's just surprising how much, um, you know, in, in in interaction with life as well as mm, the things outside of life, sort of, uh, <laughs> that simply having respect will get you so much further. Yes, that is that is definitely my experience. Now then, we can switch gears a little bit. Come back to the Ozarks directly. Yes. 
in, in our sort of our own mythological tritster that people might not think of. Yes. Lil Abner. And schmooze. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I I love this. And I did not actually grow up reading Lil Abner. Um, I did not either, really. Although, um, when I was very, very young, did go to Dog Patch once or twice. And I and I wanted to go to Dog Patch. I missed that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I've driven by its remains, which made me a bit sad down there in Arkansas. It is, and and it and you know the the fate of the park for for those that are wondering. Lil Abner was a was a comic strip, um, yes. and um, mainly I think from the '40s through the '70s, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, 1934 to 1977. Okay, okay, and then ultimately, Dog Patch USA was a theme park based around the characters of Lil Abner. Um, and um, it has, after it closed, it's, there's been several attempts to resurrect it mm -hmm. and get it going again in one fashion or another that just seemed to kind of fall apart. Yeah, it, in, in every... Uh, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell tell tales because I'd have to actually look at the documentation. I, I think current ownership is actually moving it towards something consistent that may actually happen. Um, but every so often, too. what's that? I've I've heard that too that, that there's a little more promise of something happening with it now. Yeah, um, but certainly it was beloved. Uh, just as a bit of an aside, what I never got to go. What was it like? Um, it was in some ways a bit like Silver Dollar City, um, but not, it had more of a campy feel to it, mm -hmm. uh, uh, a, more of a lighthearted feel to it. Um, um, it, to me, and of course, I, I was fairly young, but it didn't seem like it took itself as serious as Sword Horse City does. <laughs> um, it was just, it, it was just kind of fun. It was, it was almost that um, stepping out of yourself, out of your element, and um, seeing this. I don't want to say simplistic, but just this idealized version of the idea of the hillbilly yes which again i think you know really tying into our episode last week and our our aspects of hillbilly jester that these are very important dynamics these are important uh cultural icons uh, mm -hmm. of uh, american history 
And these, these are, mm, I, I would say regional archetypes, not mythological archetypes, but regional archetypes that we overlook culturally at our own peril. Yes. And um, some people may be saying, okay, what does this have to do with tricksters? But Lil Abner employed the, the main elements of the tricksster archetype in his adventures um, through the comic strip and, and, you know, different media that was produced. You know, he was clever and, um, but he was still, you know, a little rough around the edges. He was but, by nature the, the trickster. And, and I think that this really, uh, again, to, um, serve as a counterpoint to the MCU trickster of Loki. This mm -hmm. is this is a, a trickster that goes unnoticed as a trickster, but fulfills the roles. It, he fulfills the, the aspects. Um, and some of them very literally in the, yeah. in the ones of um, being comparatively small of stature, easy to overlook, but also not unattractive. Uh, almost consistently, and this is based on mythological archetypes, so go th throw something at Joseph Campbell, not me, if you don't like it, uh, but that the, the trickster is almost exclusively male in ancient archetype stories. Yeah. It just, you know, that that is just the way that, um, the archetype uh, developed. And I think in part, rightly or wrongly, uh, that happened because of the methods that the trickster uses would traditionally be seen as something that a lady would not associate herself with. Very true. And the, there's, there, there is a, there is, I suppose, a subversive within hunter or subversive within masculine role mm -hmm. um, job to this, this position. And I, I can't help but, you know, drawing comparison between cartoons, uh, the comic strip of Lil Abner, but to my favorite cartoon, which is Bugs Bunny, is drawing those comparisons. Um, Bugs Bunny is is clever. He always has some aspect of the upper hand. He has a, a near omniscient view of his enemy. He is at the same time very everyday, very earthy. Uh, he he's uh, he makes comparatively inappropriate jokes, um, especially for the 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 era. Yes. I, well, and dressing in drag, for instance. I was going to say, and uh, classically dressing as a woman um, to to do things, and you know, to to foil the enemy, to but also the, there's the aspect with Bugs Bunny, 
that you'll always feel that he has one eye on the audience and a good half of what he's doing is to make us laugh. Yes, yes. And actually uh, another example in the Looney Tunes world of the Tritster really would be the Roadrunner. Yes. <laughs> which exemplifies the, you know, animal motif that often comes out with the Tritster characters. But, um, you know, the Roadrunner, you know, fools Wiley Coyote, um, which again is a play because yes. the Coyote is, a, is the Tritster. Yes. But he's being tricked. And and something that is, is an interesting observation, uh, it could be conjectured that while E. Coyote, super genius, is uh, the, the, the fact that he is the, uh, that he should be the trickster. Mm -hmm. uh, he should be the embodiment of the trickster, but you could conjecture that his embracing of modernity, his obsession with acme, the idea that he has printed business cards, can you tell I'm a fan? Uh, printed <laughs> business cards that he's constantly ordering things from companies to accomplish his goal. The fact that he has rather than embraced his uh, uh, archetypal God divinity, through intuition and through the, the, the effects of the subconscious, he has instead given himself completely over to the rational conscious mind. Yes. Again, the fact that he keeps introducing himself and uh, uh, approaching things as some sort of benign um, quasi scientist door-to-door -door salesman <laughs> is, I would speculate, a reminder that as we embrace modernity, we lose that spark of divinity that the primitive, quote unquote, that is actually the sophisticated and Roadrunner, who isn't even, uh, doesn't even speak, he just beeps, right. uh, has, has fully embraced uh, this this drive away from modernity, this 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 animalistic intelligence, we th we tend to associate, I think, because of our uh, you know snootiness, that we're you know that that animals aren't intelligent, that animals are are animalistic in nature. We even we even have verbiage for that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you are familiar with how the natural world works, if you're familiar with the rhythms of this, this larger energy, uh, we realize that there is an enormous amount, a, uh, an unfathomable amount of intelligence that is at play, uh, of cunning and survival and intuition, which is a deeper intelligence than conscious thought. And I think that, that, that there's something very enduring about this in something as simple as a children's cartoon and uh, Wiley Coyote putting on his rocket skates. <laughs> well, and switching it back around to little Abner, it's the same, the same process. It's the cartoon, but it's a way to analyze and um, critique 
the quote sophisticated urban um, mm -hmm. culture that is supposed to be quote in charge of yes. the world. Um, <laughs> yes, ostensibly in charge. Yes, and um, in particular, it's uh, a representation of mountain culture uh, in the South. And, um, but almost in the view of that this culture was created almost as myth, uh, more than reality. Right. And, you know, it, it is a situation in which uh, Cap, who created this, um, you know, Kaplan was not from the Ozarks. He was a Northeasterner. But New York, I believe, yeah. It's very powerful in, in terms that if you know where to look, you can find hillbillies almost anywhere. Oh, very true. Very true. <laughs> and all parts of the country have hillbillies if you look. Yes. And, uh, you know, and um, in other, in other mm, countries and other cultures, and as well there's there's so much that that encapsulates in terms of hillbilly culture but uh, you know reviewing reviewing the labner reviewing the um the the dialects which technically are fictitious reviewing the uh the the figures of speech reviewing the the bits and pieces of characters uh the fact that i grew up with references to schmooze uh, and Kickapoo Joy Juice <laughs> uh, that I really didn't even know where it came from, but I, I grew up with with these. There was another one that was that was in the Lambda that I, I recognized because my family used the, the terminology. Um, and just in terms of, of utilization of, of words and how it can move into pop culture and become something other than, than what it was necessarily intended, one year in... 2006, uh, 2007, actually the year that the, that I started to at the Ozarks, uh, my mom had procured uh, a, a package of white kusha pumpkins. I told you there was going to be a pumpkin story. White, yeah. kusha, white kusha pumpkins from Baker Creek Seeds in Mansfield, Missouri, heirloom seeds. Yeah. We planted them. They grew prolifically. And it was really interesting just in terms because the the white kushan pumpkin uh grows almost gourd like it's it has a round bulbous bottom and it grows turns into like a big uh looks like a big goose sort of thing uh it's very rounded and these things start growing and they don't stop <laughs> and we're, we're watching these things and at one point my mom goes it's a schmoo and I'm like, that's nice. What is a schmoo? And she's like, here, look it up. And I look at it and I look at the shape and the color of a schmoo. And I'm going, oh my gosh, it is a schmoo. Um, and then on top of that, schmoos are delicious. And, uh, and, and the, the kusha melons, you can kind of make it into anything. We ended up making them into pie. And so, so somewhere on State of the Ozarks is a photo of a schmoo. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs>
Al Cap would be proud. I I hope so. I hope so. It was it was a good moment, and the pie was excellent. Pie sounds good. It does sound good. Pie always sounds good. Some of the best pie in the world can be found in the Ozarks. That's very true. <laughs> um, and talking about you know the mountain motifs and everything, uh, we could go into Jack the Hero. I really found the the Jack the Hero concept to be really fascinating, especially uh, with its ties to the Ozarks. And in this particular reference, um, uh, the trustabell.wordpress.com site, excellent site, really, really good information on, on that. I love the, the Trustabell WordPress site's uh, work. And there's also a great uh, reference to the work of Judy and Richard Dockery uh, Young and their um, uh, books, which I don't believe are in print anymore, but you can get them uh, at times as used books are, are well worth, uh, well worth your time. Yeah, really I've just, got several of them. Yeah. I, I do too, I do too, and fantastic stuff. Uh, my introduction to Ozark's folklore was through Richard uh, and Judy Dockery Young. Very neat. That, uh, what, what really jumped out to you about this particular lore? Um, well, for one thing, um, I like the fact that he's, you know, uh, a bit of an underdog. Um, and, um, it is something that is that is fairly uh, tied to the Ozarks and the Appalachia, so it's it's more regional. Um, but um, you know, he he's the underdog who has to face trials. I mean, to be honest, it kind of goes back to uh, Heracles, um, uh, same type of you know sort of challenges um but um i i really like the um the old fire dragoman story yes and jack and the old fish i'm i'm personally glad that jack did not encounter a howler We'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad Jack didn't. And for for just a little bit of contextualization, Jack is a, is a is a you know, archetypal hero of um, European origin. Yeah, and we predominantly know him as Jack and the Beanstalk. Yes. But the idea that Jack is is a character who's gone on, gone to do many adventures, gone to do many things, gone gone about a variety of things, and so the Beanstalk adventure was just one of many. Right, um, and he's he is a bit of a combination of of sort of that the 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 hero 
per se. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, it's the sacred son tradition um, that um, he's sort of destined to be a hero, but he, but Jack is also a trickster, which of course, Jack and the Beanstalk, he tricks the giant. Yes. Um, so um, you combine the trickster with the more pure uh, hero aspect that um, you don't see combined as often. Um, but, but Jack kind of bridges those two and, and usually and it, it always comes out um, good and kind of with a wink, wink, you know, see, see what <laughs> we did here um, aspect to the story. Um, but the, um, the old fire dragon uh, tale, which and it's it's sort of like the Jack and the Wishing Rings, a classic story. It's about theft, stealing um, from a giant or a goddess, usually in these stories. Um, but the Ozark tale is Jack and the old Tush, and Tush um, meant tusk in old Ozark dialect yes. um and so a monster is stealing jack and his brother's food um which is um a little different than jack and the beanstalk where they were just you know they were starving and sell the cow to get money to support the family um but so there's trials, there's tribulations of figuring out who is stealing the food. And it's usually um, a giant or some monster. Um, in this case, Old Tush, um, who's sent by a Williwa, which is an Ozarkian leprechaun-like creature. A while back, you were saying you wanted a leprechaun Ozark story, so there you have it. I am very happy about the Willow Walk. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, so basically, uh, oh, and it also usually involves the below ground, the caves. Um, so instead of a, you know, a beanstalk that goes up into the clouds, you know, it takes place in the, in the, in the caves in the in the underworld basically um but it's jack basically saving the day but with a little bit of trickery as a means and something that i i find very interesting about jack as the trickster motif here in the ozarks as well as elsewhere is that in jack's trickster qualities seem to come from three aspects. Uh, one, he is a poor everyman. He represents yeah. us. And so he doesn't have resources. He does not have the magical, uh, overarching, all powerful resources of, of a traditional God figure. And so, or the, the mythological God figures. And so, he has to employ trickery in order to get things done. Right. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that makes him so endearing because we can place ourselves in 
into his story. If we were in this situation, we couldn't call upon you know the uh, the, the strength of Thor, so to speak, or or any of its mm, equivalents. We'd have to figure out a way to trick these other beings into doing what we wanted them to do. That said, as as noted within this WordPress article uh, on the site, is there is a psychopomp aspect because he does seem to be able to magically travel between realms. That's true. And, and even Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, in essence, he does. It is. It's, it is something that we really overlook because, again, I think that we tend to um, we, we tend to be mentally trained. Coming back to, uh, you know, the, the importance of trickster archetypes is to move our heads out of the space that we are in. Mm -hmm. Just like, uh, for example, uh, Josephine Baker moving out of, of, uh, of Jim Crow laws and moving to France, not ever really being able to fit back into that old world and probably for the better, that these, these liminal spaces, entering into the liminal space, even conceptually, means that we really can't go back. We can't go back to the old way of thinking. And Jack, in this particular case, is in really uh, challenging us in these moving into other realms. But our almost monolithic um, modern simplicity doesn't see climbing the beanstalk as moving into another realm and having to change the way we think and see the world and change our perspective, we see it just as a literal beanstalk. And we're like, oh, look, he climbed up it and then he climbed down it. Uh, and we're really not allowing ourselves the, the boon to, to quote Joseph Campbell, the idea that the hero journeys and, uh, take and, and is able to retrieve a boon uh, uh, something of great worth to bring back to the people that somehow helps them. It feeds them. It changes their mindset. It changes their perspective. It brings abundance. It ushers in. It brings the rain. It does something good uh, to more people. And then we're like, oh, look, there was a beanstalk, and now he's at the bottom of it again. And we're not being changed by this story. Right. Right. And that's, and again, that's that modern perspective. Which I, I think part of, part of that is the idea that we relegate these stories as children's stories. And so we think of them as pure entertainment mm -hmm. rather than a, a larger uh, mythopoetic saga that is meant to teach us as adults something. Very true. Now, one aspect I do find interesting about the Oldfish um, uh, tale is that now Tush means tusk, and the supposition that Old Tush is the Galrau. Mm, yes. And that really, again, forcing me to get outside. I love the Galrau stories. But it forces me to get outside of the, uh, the, the, the literal and dismissive. And suddenly the Galrau 
moves into uh, a pantheon of beings that that have a lot more weight. But this is something that also is uniquely Ozarkian. It is. It is. And um, the Williwa in the story is sometimes characterized as a one-eyed magical blacksmith, um, which the the author in the research article uh, points to Odin, um, but which is possible. Um, It would not be my first assumption though, because blacksmiths from the time of the ancient Greeks have been depicted as one-eyed. And the reason being is literally they would put a patch over one eye so that if sparks from the fire and the anvil uh, hit them in in the face, that they would only be blinded in one eye, they'd still have eyesight. So, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there is some um, conjecture that the concept of the Cyclops actually refers to blacksmith because in myth the cyclops were blacksmiths for the gods that is interesting so, so um you know i think odin is i i think odin is sort of that northern european idea but literally it would just be a, a um a reference to being a blacksmith. And then, and to me, that makes more sense because in the tale, um, in the caves in the underground, Jack has to defeat giants. Um, and he's only able to do so with rusty farm tools, which again uh, points to him as the every man um, fighting the gods, basically. Um, but that again would reinforce the idea of the iron um, and the blacksmith to me. It does. And iron for for me is tying into a lot of interesting things. Uh, gods of the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fact that, that iron traditionally was a way to repel uh, not only bad luck, but t- potentially the Fae. Fae or other evil. Uh, and specifically um, in folk magic, rusted items were used for curses and hexes. So, um, um, so it, it could be, it could point to between the blacksmith reference and that his weapons were rusty farm tools that perhaps these giants had to be killed by by a curse or a hex of some sort, resorting to magic, which again, transcends that connection with the divine and the treadster, so. It does, and I I can't help but think a little bit uh, about um, not only Hephaestus, but also Goban, uh, the Celtic god of blacksmithing. True, true. The, um, the, no, the, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say that <clears throat> um, blacksmithing was in, in um, for ancient Celts, uh, revered as, mm -hmm. as, uh, as a magical art. Very true. Um, I, I think that the fact that the foe is um, our giants, of course, provides some continuity with the old European versions of Jack. Um, but it's also kind of interesting because there are a lot of, there are a number of stories of giants in the region of some being remains found, uh, skeletons found, others uh, in native lore. Um, and so uh, it's a, almost um, a possibility of acknowledgement of the old world aspect of the story, as well as perhaps things found and heard as they came into the region. Yes. Uh, and. and and something that is, I believe, often overlooked during the um, colonial and early settlement periods uh, of the United States is the enormous amount of uh, cultural flux and cultural intermixing that was going on. And the fact that these are, these are significant and ancient cultures that are fusing together in the early formation of the United States. Yes. I, I agree with you there. Now, realistically, based on time, I think we've, we've um, arrived with the uh, <sighs> trickster howler uh as our conclusion for tonight's episode <laughs> i think so um and it's some aspects um it's um not any more far-fetched than the howler itself um true true the the mm, from a, from a modern myth-making standpoint the Ozark Howler might as well be a trickster. Well, he's tricked Hollywood. Yes, and uh, spawned his own website. <laughs> so I'd, I'd say I'd say that the the Ozark Howler, from that perspective, from a modern cultural perspective, is indeed a trickster. I would in it really in the vein in the vein of Bud Spunny, etc. Using communication in a clever way to further his ends. Um, yeah. <laughs> and in, in this particular reference, um, found at ozarkowler.info, there is the conjecture uh, that the Ozark Howler, Howler is actually a human bear hybrid created through Magic by Aleister Crowley. <laughs> certainly, um, certainly uh, attention grabbing when you when you see the the headline. Um, <laughs> um, 
it, he's a tritster, but I don't think he's quite that much of a tritster. Um, um, but I, I do. I do like the fact that they try to put the they try to put this in terms of the Ghostbusters movie. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. I the yeah the the title of the of the post is Aleister Crowley, the father of the Ozark Howler, and then we get Ghostbuster references. And the idea that uh, somehow uh, an English black magician traveled to the Ozarks and did the you know what with something, and uh, uh, a baby howler was born. <laughs> and um, but with the conclusion that in folk mythology, detailed factual matters are beside the. Uh, the point um true and i would i for the fun of it i agree from an archetypal standpoint and this is i'm, I'm going i'm going now i'm going to be the snooty one um i i would say that the the details are actually are the point um i i think that is something that it, it can be consistently frustrating about a modern view of folklore is the idea that it's just made up stories. We can just make right. up anything. And looking even just a, a cursory dive into trickster lore uh, from tonight shows that tricksters and the trickster lore, not only is it thousands of years old, it is also consistent throughout many cultures for thousands of years. And it really speaks to the fact that folklore is more than just something you feel like making up, uh, mm -hmm. that we're dealing with, with elemental truth. We're dealing with archetypal truth that speaks to the human experience. And if we're humble enough to listen that we can gain an enormous amount of wisdom, an enormous amount of knowledge, uh, a repository of, of wealth that is intuitional wealth, that steps beyond intellectual uh, understanding and moves into the intuition, which is extraordinarily powerful. It speaks to us holistically as human beings. Uh, it speaks holistically into the human experience and it is, encapsulated in just a few short paragraphs of stories, but there's extraordinary wealth there. However, it is technically specific. It is intuitionally specific. And in our modern era, we've oftentimes mistaken that for, oh, you can just make up anything. And I think we, we tread that path at our own peril. I, I think so, and and, um, and just the fact that so these modern tales that continue to build, such as those are color, um, just is evidence of the innate human need to wrestle with and grasp this concept. Um, 
and of course, literally, does the howler fit the Tridster archetype? Not literally. Um, although the way it has morphed and changed over the last 20 years in, a, in itself is a good illustration of a Tridster at work. It is. It is. And I might go so far to conjecture that the trickster spirit, uh, which could be archetypal, it could be sentient, uh, could be alive and well in, uh, in employing its wiles against uh, uh, an unsuspecting group of people who are intent upon employing the motif. In such case, it's been pretty successful. It has. It has. My hat's off to the real howler. Uh, <laughs> wherever he is. Wherever he is. is <laughs> whatever he's doing right now, I drink a toast to the real howler. Same. And on that note, uh, perhaps we'll conclude, but we don't want you to forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. On the next episode, we're going to be discussing Celtic lore and the Ozarks. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.